The uh, scripture passage on which our teaching is based this morning as we consider that is from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. I want to read through chapter 10 through verse 7. Let's give our attention to the hearing of God's word to us this morning. And Jesus went throughout all of the villages and cities, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest who send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's word. I want you to imagine for a moment a scenario, which is based on a true story, by the way, uh, of a church who has gone on a missions trip. I wonder if you've ever done one of these. Uh, I have lots of positive memories of going with a group of people to a foreign land and digging in the dirt and doing our best to serve a people that would otherwise have no access to the gospel. But if they needed food or, a, or maybe a shed built on their land or maybe some vacation Bible school being taught, we were there with our overalls on and with joy. Well, this particular group went on just such a trip and they spent about 10 days with an underdeveloped people group in a foreign land who, uh, who mostly had never heard of Christianity at all. Uh, And after their trip was over, they they considered it a huge success. The last night of the trip, the participants sort of got up and shared how they had been uh, uh, changed by the experience and how much their eyes had been opened uh, to the needs of the world around them. And so they boarded the airline for their home afterwards. But during a layover in a large American city, the group, all in little matching t-shirts, by the way, why do we do that? I don't know what's up with that. But they found themselves at their next departing gate. And soon after they took their seats, about 10 members of a very active LGBTQ group took seats very near them right there at the gate. The church group understood very quickly what they were about. There were some that were trans and they were dressed uh, differently. Uh, Some were gay and kissing each other in their seats. Uh, Well, fortunately, there wasn't an altercation But the church group was visibly uncomfortable. So much so that after about 20 minutes of witnessing the public displays of affection being exchanged between the gay couples, four of the group stood up and removed themselves from their presence and went to a nearby gate to wait for their flight to depart. And again, while no verbal unpleasantries were exchanged, the pastor reported that it was pretty clear why the church folks withdrew from that moment. Okay, stop for just a second. Do you see a little bit of the contrast there? Why is it that these church people were more than happy to gleefully serve these lost tribes of people in their foreign land, 
but so joylessly uncomfortable at the people at their airport gate who probably had even less exposure to the gospel. I thought about this question for years since I heard about that story, and I've come to believe that the problem is what I would call a location issue. And by that I mean that the church people misunderstood where they were. That is, when they had shovels in their hands and they're digging out the foundation of new sheds that they're building for the natives, they saw themselves as missionaries. They didn't expect anything from the natives. They were just delighted to serve Jesus and do whatever they could. But almost the minute that they stepped into the airport, they began to see themselves as re-entering the American culture war, where those people were troublemakers, blights upon Americans, America's cultural decline. And of course, if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, is Les slipping on what we've always believed about our historical doctrine of healthy sexuality? If that's what you're thinking right now, then you very well may be part of the problem. But I want to make an assertion this morning that Jesus believes that you and I are always to be missionaries. We've come to this portion in our study in Matthew to a place where Jesus is telling his followers how he wants them to relate to the world around them. And the long and the short of it is this, my followers are on a mission, Jesus will say, all the time. And he follows up that commission with one of his longer sermons about the ups and downs that his people are going to face in this great lifelong task of ours. But this is what I want you to think about when you're studying this morning. Where are you? And I don't mean Oxford, Mississippi. I mean, what kind of context are you in? And do you have a missionary mindset about living in the early 20s in America? Or am I thinking of something else? I think Jesus gives us at least three things to think about when it comes to us understanding our mission that he's given us. He gives us, first of all, a mission of compassion, a mission of empowerment, And finally, a mission of strategy. Let's start with that first one about compassion. Look at verse 36. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love getting glimpses into that the New Testament gives us into Jesus' emotional life because we rarely think about the fact that he had one. I mean, what was he thinking? What, What was it like to be around him? Well, Matthew says that when you were around him, you noted that he was a man of compassion. That word compassion is a a French derivative. It literally translated means to suffer with. It's kind of a nice description for one who would eventually suffer with his people on the cross. But how much have you really thought that out, and I would argue applied, the idea that one of the number one self-descriptors that Jesus says of himself is that he's compassionate. Let's start, first of all, with its theological meaning. Very interesting. Jesus' compassion shows that he is doing the Old Testament Yahweh's business. This is really interesting. Over and over again, when Yahweh's compassion gets mentioned in the Old Testament, often, so much, it's talking about a time when God is going to look at the Jews, exiled, enslaved, needing to be regathered, and rescue them. 
Over and over again. That's what it's talking about, this compassion. Let me fire, quick fire a couple of rapid uh, scripture passages at you. Deuteronomy 30. So shall it be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've said before you, and you call to mind all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to the command that I give you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Let's do another one. Uh, Isaiah 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Another one, Jeremiah 12. After I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. You get the point. I've got more But do you see that there's a theme emerging there? Because the Old Testament always talks about God being compassionate when he's thinking about reinstituting the people of God, returning them back to their rightful place as heirs of God. Now, like, I want to pick pick this up again in the next point, but, but leave that right here. Matthew has to be thinking about this as he unpacks the next stage of Jesus' mission. But think about how hard it is to keep Jesus in this picture. (laughs) Maybe you're like me. There was one commentator, uh, Bruner, who said this. He said, mission is not motivated by Jesus' disgust for people because they're such sinners, nor even by imperial sense that he has a right to people, which he does. But it's motivated by his compassion for hapless people. And my question for you on this first point is simply this. Has that registered with you? Jesus' fundamental motive in his work in and about you is because he has compassion for you. But it occurs to me as we think about this, that's an idea that has to be received, doesn't it? I do think for many of us, we've, we've followed Jesus for so long that we've forgotten what it's like to be without his compassion. We've forgotten a little bit what it's like to go to a funeral where the people in that funeral think that this life is all there is. And they walk around in utter despair. Or maybe you've forgotten what it's like to lose a job without the knowledge that you have a father who owns the cattle of a thousand hills and has promised to, to provide everything that you need. Or maybe you've forgotten what it was like when you would experience heartbreak, when you felt betrayed, when you felt utterly alone. And no sense that there was a God in the universe that loves you and protects you and cares for you. We forget what that was like. But I think Jesus is making this point that suffering in this life creates this inertia oftentimes to cast God in the character of the great cosmic Scrooge. He's just so put out with your weakness. But in the Old Testament, when Moses asked to see God's glory... God, show me the thing that you love the most about yourself. Tell me the thing that would absolutely blow my mind if I wrap my mind out of it. Do you know what Yahweh, that mean Old Testament God, do you know what his first answer was? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
Now, some of you know, he says a couple of challenging things in the two verses after that. And I know you know that, but I can bet you $5 that jaded hearts will race past those encouraging words that are the first things out of Yahweh's mouth. We all do that. You've heard Brian and I quote often from our good friend Ricky Jones, a pastor over in Tulsa. Ricky tells this hilarious story about taking his kids uh, to Bass Pro Shops for a, to, to sort of get a Christmas shopping list. He and his wife were without a Christmas list. So they thought, you know, let's just go straight to the source, let them walk through the store, see the kinds of things that they want. He said they'll walk through and they'll be like, oh, daddy, can I, can I have this airsoft gun or something? And Ricky, of course, would look at him and say, put it on the list. But in this illustration, he says, but imagine if at the end of that little Christmas shopping excursion, (laughs) I looked over at my children in the parking lot on our way home and said, okay, kids, you see this list that you just made? You're getting none of it. Not one thing. I just wanted you to come here today to see all the stuff you're not getting. You would think him the worst possible parent in the world, wouldn't you? That would be about as cruel as it gets. But isn't this oftentimes the way we think about what God has done? We walk around thinking, God, why is it that you are constantly dangling that great marriage in front of me, knowing all the while that I don't get to have that? Or why is it that I have to have friends who are all these people that seem so fulfilled and so rich, (laughs) rich in their jobs, but God doesn't love me enough to give me one that I don't hate? And why? Because we think to ourselves, he means me harm. He's mad at me. And honestly, I don't blame him. I don't like myself very much either. But this is the principle I think Jesus is trying to establish. You will never be a person on a mission of compassion until you have been the recipient of compassion yourself. That's the theme. That's the big deal. (laughs) There was a statistic that came out of my time in campus ministry that was very weird. I was talking to somebody about this this week. Um, about students who are getting ready to go to uh, physical therapy school, PT school. And I remember 100% of the students that I talked to, this is amazing, every single person I talked about, talked to, who was on their way to PT school had had an injury themselves when they were in high school. And they just fell in love with their PT. They were so inspirational. They were so kind to them. They were so close to them. They bonded with them and they wanted to be like them. Look, the question is, like, do I approach this world with compassion? Or am I finding opportunities when I see people who disagree with me, maybe even from the LGBTQ community, and am I finding ways just to make sure they know that I disagree with them? Am I finding cutting remarks to say to them in coffee shops or things like that? Because Jesus' first impulse is compassion. And Jesus says, if you're following me, you're going to find it in your heart too. So first of all, it's a mission of compassion. Secondly, it's a mission of empowerment. Because this next section of our text, honestly, is really, really cool. Because Jesus announces the purpose of his mission when he says in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Ha, that's it. (laughs) We have to go because there's tons of need out there. That's why. So let's go. Okay, Jesus, what are the first steps? And he says, ha, glad you asked. Step number one, start praying. Now look, I hope at this point that's not anticlimactic for you. I realize it can take a long time 
for even Christians to get it through their head, just how prayer fits in with this idea of mission. You may have gotten tangled up in this question. I mean, that I certainly have. Well, if God already knows what his mission is, and of course, if he's already marching out in the light of his own sovereignty, then what's the use of praying since he's already going to do what he's going to do anyway? You ever thought that way? Well, by the way, the short answer is this, because God is not only sovereign over the success of our mission, he's also sovereign over the means by which that mission is going to get executed. So every Christian asks a very interesting question when the very idea of the desire to pray pops into their heads, which is, wait a minute, is this God moving me to do something? <laughs> Could this be his hand motivating me because he knows what's coming? In other words, God uses means by which he accomplishes his will, and that means he is pleased to include your prayers in the execution of his mission and his plan. Look, surely some of you have had this experience that I've had. I, has, it, has anyone ever popped into your head? Maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's who knows. Someone pops into your head quite randomly. Uh, some person you from high school, um, somebody that uh, used to work with back in the day. And in your mind, you, you think about them, you think to yourself, I wonder if they're doing okay. Now, if you're like me, that thought speedily exits your brain as soon as it entered because you're not thinking about prayer. But I can tell you, on more than a few occasions, only days, sometimes it's actually hours later, I will find out through social media, through conversation with somebody else, that that person was kind of going through something. And I always find myself wishing that I had decided to act on that random impulse. How do we know? Now, and no, I'm not making some principle here about everybody act on whatever random mental impulse that you have from now on. Don't ever do that. I'm just saying that a Christian thinks differently about the mission that we're on as if it's something that is motivated by God, as if it is empowered by God, and as if it is accomplished by God. So maybe I ought to be talking to him about it semi-regularly, right? But here's what's almost funny. Can you imagine the disciples listening to Jesus and thinking, boy, you know, Jesus, you're exactly right. Evangelism is a good thing, and somebody should definitely go and do something about that. Of course, you know it. Jesus looks and goes, <laughs> in just a few moments, right, now you come and follow me. So I, I stands to warn you, be warned before you start praying. God is often going to answer your prayer for mission by motivating you to do something. And, and by the way, Jesus is being fairly obvious about what he's doing. You know, he chooses 12 main leaders to follow him, which is a very clear little hyperlink to the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus is clearly saying, I am here to constitute a new Israel. Remember what the compassion thing was about? I'm here constituting the people of God. So all of those echoes from the Bible stories that you've heard as a child are being employed to get you to understand that, yes, this is a God-ordained mission, but it's about you. It's a mission for you. This is exactly how God works. We pray, Lord, I'm just so frustrated in my marriage now. Can't you just make her better or something? And the strange thing is, is when you start to pray that with some earnestness and, and integrity, you begin to be possessed by this powerful burden to go and talk to her about your issues. But again, admit that what you wanted was for God to kind of, you know, snap his fingers and just fix her. <laughs> 
But that's not how the mission works. Jesus empowers the ones who pray to do the mission themselves. I'll never forget a conversation I had with with my old mentor, uh, Bebo Elkin. And I was talking to him about an idea I had uh, to change some staff training materials that we had when we were working for RUF. (laughs) And I remember I said, you know, someone needs to write a training portion in the manual that talks about blah, 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 blah. And I've quoted him 50 times since he said this. He goes, huh. He goes, that sounds like a really good project for you. That's how it works. And again, one of the reasons why I'm leaning into this point is because I do believe that we are reaching a bit of an inflection point for our church. Uh, We've been growing fairly steadily at a certain good pace. Uh, But it won't be long before I think Jesus starts to call us to ask ourselves, okay, what exactly are we doing with all this energy? Are we going to spend it on ourselves so that we can have a nice, fancy place to worship and to teach our kids Bible stories? I sure hope not. The question I want us to begin to ask in accordance with this study is, what will God move in us to do? And how will we answer that call when it arises? Well, that brings me to the third and final point, which I think is equally as important. That is, Jesus calls us to a mission of strategy. This is a brief little point. But see, after Jesus picks his disciples, he launches into, again, this second large block of a sermon in the book of Matthew. Remember, when we started this study, I told you there are five of these sort of corresponding to the first five books of the Old Testament. And of these different things, they all have different emphases. Well, the block that Jesus teaches after our passage is getting really practical about what to expect when you can move into the lives of other people. That is, if you're going to be on this mission, you need to know what's going on, what to expect, how to act. And so Jesus gets this this huge sermon about all of the wisdom that we get in learning how to do that well. Go read it for yourself this afternoon. But the kinds of things he's going to say are the following. Number one, he says, look, go to the Jewish people first. Why? Because that's where the revelation of God started. And of course, as it turns out, the apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, what did he do first? He went to the Jewish synagogues first so that he could sort of start with the God fearers and use it as a launching pad to talk to the Gentiles. Second, Jesus is going to say things to plead people to uh, uh, as earnest to plead with people as earnestly as we can to accept the nature of his mission. But he says, if they don't respond, shake the dust off your feet. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a point at which it might be that our efforts are wasted, and we need to discern if we're using our resources wisely. Jesus gives that kind of instruction. A third thing he'll say is, look, if you're going to go out with the ministry of the word, that's great. But all word ministry needs to be backed up with deed ministry. In other words, don't just go to people with a message of salvation for their souls unless you have the intention of embodying that salvation in their lives, in their work, in their social needs. A fourth thing, a final thing, that he'll instruct his followers to not be those that live extravagantly. Paul will affirm that a workman is worthy of his wages, yes, but Jesus warns his missionaries to look for a modest life, which is so contrary to the cults, right? The cult leader, of course, is usually the richest and most privileged person among the people. My point I'm simply making is this, is Jesus' followers are to be thinking strategically about how to get this message of hope and healing out. So here's your question, Christ Presbyterian Church of Oxford. Are you doing that? We've had a season of growth, both numerically and obviously in our physical plant here in this lovely building. 
But are we thinking about how Jesus is empowering our mission? Or are we, are we simply trying to, are we racing towards becoming, I don't know, like a country club church where membership in it is like a, a social club? Or are we thinking carefully about how to mobilize ourselves wisely, strategically, to be the kind of church, I remember Tim Keller saying this one time, to be the kind of church that if God forbid there was a bomb dropped on this building on Sunday mornings, wiping out the entire congregation, that the city of Oxford would weep for it. Not because they believed a word that we said one way or the other, but because we had loved this city so well. Hmm. How long before we have to think about multiplying our sense of mission both locally and beyond? I think this is the challenge of picking up Jesus' mission that he's trying to launch here. It has always been launching, by the way. There's been more than a couple of you who have referred me to this little Netflix special that's getting all this attention uh, uh, called the, the Blue Zones. How many of you have watched the Blue Zones? The, the, the show is about a, a researcher who is looking into places in the world where there are disproportionate numbers of people who have lived until they're 100 years old, right, and trying to, invest, to investigate them. Well, it turns out that Okinawa, Japan, of all places, is one of those places. And the host spent all this time trying to investigate exactly what the lifestyle preferences were that might have contributed to the longevity of those people. Well, one of the things that he discovered in a list of things that, uh, that sort of contributed to it is the practice of ikigai. I didn't know that Japanese word. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Randall will uh, correct me on that later on. Uh, apparently, the word loosely translated is, uh, Randall speaks Japanese. You ought to know that, but he is. He used to live in Japan a while back. Go figure. Multi-talented. Um, the word loosely translated is the word Purpose. This researcher on this show began to notice that every single one of these people that were 100 years old had lived every one of the days of their lives because they knew why they were there. They had a reason. They had a purpose. There was something they were supposed to do, something they were supposed to endure. And every day they would remind themselves of what their ikigai was. And as I was watching that show this week, I thought to myself, there should never be a time when a Christian has to ask that question. There should never be a time where I wonder what my purpose is. Now, I can't guarantee you that that causes you to live to 100. I don't know that I want to live to 100, quite frankly. But the point is, is every Christian walks out knowing what their ikigai is. I am here to advance his kingdom. I am here to show compassion on his people. I am here to think strategically with the wisdom that God has given us throughout the ages and implanted in our own very congregation. And I'm here to realize that probably when it's all said and done, it's not somebody else's job. <laughs> it's mine. He's calling me. And I realize that there's a certain age you get to, it's kind of like, oh man, I, 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 I'm so tired. <laughs> My back hurts. I'm not mobile anymore. That's okay. You can still pray. You can always pray. God has empowered all of our people to participate in whatever way in which we can, at whatever stage of life we find ourselves, in whatever uh, station in life we find ourselves, to move forward. 
We're probably entering into a season as a church where we're thinking about those very things. And we're going to do so in the light of what Jesus has called us to mission. To mission. Because the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Let's pray. Then, Lord, we do ask that you would send, uh, raise up leaders. Even as we close out our nominations for church officers today, we are burdened and moved and longing for you to uh, raise up workers. We want to be able to look back and say that even though it looks around us as if secularization of our culture means that you're, you're, you're waning, the truth of, of your gospel is waning around us, that's not our business. We're not here to turn the tide of culture. We're here to be faithful with the people you've called us to love and to care for. We pray that you'd help us to do it well because we struggle oftentimes. So we ask for your grace as we consider. And we will begin simply by praying like we're doing right now. Lord, use us. Here am I, Lord. Send me. What would you have us to do? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.